downstairs for Children's Church, and uh, appreciate your ministry. Thank you for singing, and it's good to have Mr. and Mrs. Couch, Ray, Mr. and Mrs. Ray Couch, with us today too, and with the family. They're taking up a whole pew, pretty much. So that's great. Um, if you'll go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Second Thessalonians chapter three, uh, we're going to be finishing up our series on Thessalonians. We've gone. From 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 all the way to 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. And we're going to be finishing that up today. And Lord willing, uh, I'm not sure if I'm going to start it next week or if I'm going to start in September, but I'm wanting to start a series on Nehemiah, the book of Nehemiah. And, and uh, so I mean, I'm getting excited about that, studying that book too. I've never studied the book of Thessalonians. I've really enjoyed this study of um, this book because this is where we're at. You know, we, we struggle with these things even today, even though it's been about 2,000 years in between the, when this was written originally by the Lord to these people. Second Thessalonians chapter 3 is where we're going to begin. When I was in college and Crystal and I were newly married, I was in seminary at that point, we uh, had a little purple Ford Escort. And uh, because we had no children yet, we the college students loved to hang out with Crystal and, and me, and we would go and take them shopping because they didn't have cars at college. They were pretty much flown there and then bused to the school and had to walk wherever they went. And so we were kind of their transportation to go to Walmart. Woo! But anyway, that's what they did. They wanted to go to Walmart, and uh, one day we had a bunch of girls that we worked with in the dining common there that we took we're going to take them to Walmart. And on the way, the big thoroughfare is called Wade Hampton Boulevard, uh, four-lane, six-lane highway. And anyway, I got on that, and shortly thereafter, on the way to Walmart, I had a flat tire and had to uh, pull off. Have I told you guys this story? Okay, good. Anyway, I pulled off uh, I pulled off into this parking lot. There's traffic going by me uh, from a distance. And I told the girls, Hey, don't worry, i got the spare tire in there. It's inflated. No problem. So I go in the back, and why are you laughing, Crystal? But anyway, I go in the back to the trunk, and I get the little wrench thing. I don't know what you call it. But anyway, you get the wrench thing. You can probably see where this is going. Uh, but anyway, I go and put it on the lug nuts. I know that. Put it on the lug nuts, and uh, I jack up the car after I figured out how to work the jack. And then, uh, so I got it up. And I am trying to get this thing. And I'll, again, I have about three girls in the back seat and Crystal and is in the front seat and the car's off, so it's getting hot. And I'm taking a long time to even get the car up. And I don't know why they didn't get out, but they stayed in there. Okay? But I just barely, I, I, you know, and I added some more pressure, by the way. Uh, but anyway, but we had jacked that thing up. And I'm sitting here and I'm trying to release these, these lug nuts. And it got to a point where I was not getting it, so I got on it, and it was like one of those little four deal, four, like a plus sign kind of deal, and so that wrench was, so I got there, and I'm trying to do it, and I can't do it, so I end up getting on top one edge, and I'm holding onto the car, and I'm like bouncing up and down, trying to get this thing to come loose, and I'm telling Crystal, Crystal, whoever changed our tires last, they... You know, they use one of those torque wrenches. I can't get it undone. Well, this nice old elderly black man comes up, rolls down the window. Son, do you need some help? And I said, I think, I, I think I've done what all I can do. And he says, let me take a look at it. 
and comes up and he twists the other way. <laughs> and uh, this old feeble man, he just totally shamed me and all these cars. And the girls were trying not to laugh at me. Um, I was supposed to be their superior, their supervisor at work, and they were trying to respect me, but uh, I looked so foolish, right? <laughs> I was trying to, you know, I looked at those that tire, trying to change that tire, and I was having a hard time, and it was resisting me, and it just refused to comply, but the problem was I was responding to the problem in the wrong way. And uh, today we're coming to a topic that, you know, I'll be honest with you, I don't like talking about it. <laughs> but it is about church, it's about believers in the church who refuse to repent of sin in their life. Um, how do you respond to a, a church member who you have talked to, who's been corrected, but they just refuse to change their ways? Well, this was a problem in the church of Thessalonica. And, you know, usually when we think about people that refuse to repent in the church, oh, they've been immoral. Well, that wasn't the case in Thessalonica. Oh, they're doing, you know, this grievous sin. That really wasn't going on in Thessalonica. Um, actually, in the first letter that was written to them in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 11, Paul gently warned them and said, Study or be diligent to be quiet and to do your own business and to work with your own hands as we commanded you. See, the problem in the church of Thessalonica is that the there were some members, not all of them, but some of them who refused to work. And they were lazy. And because they refused to work, whether because they believed the lie in chapter 2 that the day of the Lord was right then, maybe that was the reason. We don't really know for sure. But all we know is that they were lazy and they refused to work. And because they refused to work, they didn't have anything to eat. And so where did they go? To the church. We need you to feed me. And we need you to feed us. We need some help. We need some food. And Paul is confronting this issue. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 14, he actually commanded the church to warn them. He says there, Now we exhort you, brethren, warn them that are unruly or out of step. They're not doing what God has commanded. And, he, and the context is about these ones that are not working and doing what God wants. And so, you know, we come to Second Thessalonians, and apparently these lazy believers have not changed at all. They're still doing the same thing. They didn't change, and they didn't care about changing. So how do you respond to believers like that? Well, in verse 6 of Second Thessalonians chapter 3, Paul writes, Now we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. This isn't the great suggestion. This is a, this is a command. Okay? Oh, I, don't think, I think this is a good idea. No, this is a command. And he actually uses a word here that was used in the military when, a, when an officer would come in the name of a superior officer. So Paul is not going in his own authority. He's saying, I am coming with the authority of someone that's superior to you and me, that you need to do this. And I mentioned this at the church in the park a couple of weeks ago, of my little niece when I went to South Carolina. Some of you weren't here, so you may not have heard this, but I'll go ahead and 
uh, share this story. I was sitting at my brother's house, my older brother's house, and and talking to him and his uh, talking to his wife with my dad there, and their little girl, their youngest girl, came up and said, "Mommy, Scotty, her older brother, only brother, he won't be quiet." And so she's just trying to get rid of her, you know, because <laughs> she's trying to talk, you know, talk to us. And she says, "Okay, you know, just tell him I said to be quiet." And so she goes into the kitchen. Scotty, be quiet. Mommy said so. And that's kind of the idea of what we're talking about here. Is that Paul is going to the church of Thessalonica and saying, you need to deal with this. You need to start working. And I'm, and I'm bringing you this command in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you look at verse 6. It's the authority is from uh, the Lord Jesus Christ. He's our superior. And Jesus insists that you and even these Thessalonians, that they help, that we help one another live in obedience. Jesus insists that believers in a church help each other live in obedience. Um, and we should strive to restore disobedient brothers and sisters in Christ in the church. Now, first of all, I wrote down a couple of points to consider. They're not in the text, but they are in the Bible. First of all, the Bible teaches that everyone will give an account for their own lives to the Lord. Okay? Second uh, Corinthians chapter 5, Romans chapter 12. Okay? So that's taught clearly in Scripture that you know, there's going to be a day that every Christian is going to give an account for how they've served the Lord. And we have to keep that in mind. Second of all, another point is you cannot change another human being's heart. It's a spiritual work. God has to do it. Number three, you can encourage them to live in obedience to Christ. And that's what Paul is instructing here. Encouraging that disobedient brother or sister to live in obedience to Christ because it is the will of God and it's the best for them. So how, do you, how should you respond to Christians that refuse to repent of sin in their life? Uh, verses 6 through 12, we see that in verse 6, he commands them to withdraw. Uh, he says, Now we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you withdraw yourselves from every brother that walketh disorderly or out of step. And he defines what that means. And not after the tradition or the instructions which he received from us. The members of Thessalonica, you are so blessed. They, didn't, they did not have a Bible. <laughs> they did not have a Bible they brought to church. They received instructions through the apostles of the Lord Jesus Christ and so these letters were written down by the Holy Spirit through uh, holy men, but they did not have a Bible to hold. But they had received these instructions when the missionaries were there in Thessalonica. So they knew God's will. That's what I'm getting at. They knew God's will, even though they didn't have the Scriptures, because Paul had faithfully delivered it unto them, but these ones in Thessalonica and the church refused to do it. They refused to do it. Um, you know, it's not a very uncommon idea to withdraw from people that are living in disobedience because it does hinder the people in the church. Crystal, I don't mean to pick on you, but you know, Crystal, earlier in the week, she got sick. Okay? And I came to Wednesday night, and she was still not feeling well enough to go uh, to prayer meeting on Wednesday night, but people were asking about her, and I said, actually, she's recovering from a virus that she had, and, so, and she's all clean now, and she's all good and healthy, you know. Uh, and everything, but for the for the days that she was sick, 
I, t- I told people I've been sleeping on the couch, but I had to qualify that. You know, so I, I'm not sleeping on the couch because I did something wrong. It's just trying to. I had to withdraw myself because I did. I wanted to protect myself from the germs. I didn't want the virus spreading throughout our house. And so it's not a very foreign concept for believers to do the same thing in the church personally. When we see a believer that is not living according to the will of God, and it's not that we just see it just once in a while. This is something that's habitual. This is something that they have done as a habit, and they refuse to change it. Okay? I hope you understand what I'm saying. And so the word, the command is, withdraw yourselves. It means to shrink back for protection. It was used actually um, on boats for sails. Thessalonica was a port city, so they understood this Greek word. It means to um, fold or roll and pack away a sail. Why do you do that? Why do you not just keep a sail out on the, on the sea and just leave it out all the time? Because it's going to be destroyed and damaged by the, by the environment. You know, high winds, the heat. You store it and pack it away so that it will be protected. And the same idea is with withdrawing yourselves from that one who refuses to live according to what God says. It's to protect yourself. Okay? Uh, the picture is of broken fellowship. So when you withdraw yourself from that person, they're going to see, first of all, their need to restore that fellowship. That's why you do it. So they say, oh, what did I do wrong? You know, why, why are they... Why are they withdrawing from me? Why are they not comfortable being around me anymore? Did I do something wrong? And it brings up the conversation. See, And then also the truth that it's not just that they are not right with you, but they're more importantly, they're not right with God. And that's why you do it. And so the reason why they should withdraw themselves, the Apostle Paul gives the reasons in verses 7 through 10. Uh, first of all, in verses 7 through 9, he says that these people are living contrary to the character of God. In verses 7 and 8, God, uh, he reminds them of the example he set before them. For yourselves know how you ought to follow us. For we behave not ourselves disorderly among you. Verse 8, neither did we eat any man's bread for nothing or not, for, uh, but rot or worked with hard labor and travail night and day that we might not be chargeable to any of you or be a burden to any of you. See, when the Apostle Paul and his missionary team were there, they were tent makers. They were, they were holding down a job and ministering full time. Now, this is not given so that this is the norm, but the reason why they did that is because they did not want to be a burden to these people that were lost. They didn't want it to come across that their ministry was for hire. They had, a, they had the free gift of salvation that they were trying to spread with as many as would hear the message. But he didn't want the job and the money and their, their physical needs to be a hindrance. And so he, he went the extra mile and he worked. And he didn't have to, but he chose to do that. First of all, so he wouldn't be a burden to them, but second of all, to set an example for the church there in Thessalonica. And it says that when Paul was there with his missionary companions, that they did not live in a disorderly way. They didn't contradict what they taught or what God's will was. They didn't receive any meal without working for it first. It says that they worked night and day. 
They probably worked at night because they were ministering during the day. And so they were working on these tents and they were trying to sell them. They were working so hard. And he uses the word labor and travail to just express the intensity of their work. It wasn't that they were just sitting in a, you know, sitting at a cash register hitting the buttons, you know, and that's not a bad job. Work is work. But I mean, they were doing some hard work with their hands, with the, by the sweat of their brow. And what they were trying to convey to the people by their example is that God is not lazy. He is responsible. And when God's people live in a lazy way, they reflect God as a lazy, he must expect laziness out of his people. And God is not that way at all. And so God is also not selfish, but sacrificial. And in verse 9, he writes, not because we have not power or the right or authority or privilege, but to make ourselves an example unto you to follow us. That's why we did this. And I've already alluded to it. And so Paul and his missionary team were expressing and demonstrating the character of God that a follower, a true follower of Christ is not going to be lazy. He's going to be a responsible person taking care of his personal responsibilities. But he's also going to be sacrificial and go the extra mile and not be about, what are you going to do for me? They were living contrary to the character of God, but they also were living contrary to God's explicit command. If you look at verse 10, Paul reminds them, For even when we were with you, this we commanded you, that if you would not work, neither should you eat. So, basically, if you're not going to work, then you shouldn't take a meal, whether you feel like you deserve it or not. You need to work in order to get the meal. You need to be willing to work hard. You need to work for your daily food. Um, this was countercultural for the Thessalonians. They are a Greek city. They were Roman occupied, but before they were a Greek city, Greek culture occupied that place. And Greek culture really did not encourage hard work. They encouraged art and philosophizing and just enjoying the pleasures of life. There was a group of Greeks called the Epicureans, and that's what they desired to do is experience all the pleasures of life. You know, and so they were all about pleasure and, you know, not really working so hard. You know why? Because they had a slave force. They, they, they had slavery. They had slaves doing the work for them. They didn't have to work. And they, and they did that for a reason. It was a philosophical reason why they did that. And the Christians there in Thessalonica were incorporating this kind of idea into the church. And Genesis chapter 3, verse 19 explains one effect of the curse. God said, God says this, In the sweat of thy face shalt thou eat bread, till thou return unto the ground, for out of it wast thou taken, for dust thou art, and unto dust thou shalt thou return. And so he's instructing these believers to withdraw themselves personally in their own individual lives from these ones who refuse to obey him. First of all, by not having close fellowship with them, but second of all, to withdraw the feedback from them too. Uh, they were going to the church to get their food. And I believe a valid ap- application for the Thessalonians that this is withdraw the funds. Withdraw the help. Because these people are living outside of the will of God. You are enabling them to sin and to bring disgrace to the character and name of the Lord Jesus Christ. I wrote this in my notes that hunger would be a very 
um, compelling reason to work for me. <laughs> and I'm sure it might be for some of you that, you know, God does, He created hunger for a reason. So that if you don't work, that you feel the pains of living outside of God's will. And we shouldn't take away that pain from somebody that we should allow God to do His natural work in someone's life. And so God wants to convict people with guilt and the effects of their sin. But it's such a temptation for us Christians, especially in our culture today, to make people feel good and try to take away the consequences for their sins but, and their sinful lifestyle. But that's how God teaches people. That's how He disciplines people. And we need to protect ourselves and withdraw from them. I came across this, I think it's an old proverb, but this quote is not original with me. Those that lie down with dogs rise up with fleas. And you know, if we are around people that are lazy and are not living in the will of God in whatever area of life, it will have an effect on us. And on a personal level. And and beloved, I just want you to think about people that maybe you are, you know, we need to be careful that we are not enabling people to sin. Our loved ones, people in our um, in our church. I know that I, in my own family, a family member where they, they have been living outside of God's will for many years. Still are. But it was... It was a situation in my own family, not my immediate family, but the one in South Carolina where this, this um, other family member was bailing out this person. I mean, this person in my family was doing drugs. They were disobeying the law. They weren't doing God's will in their own marriage. And, and this family member was just basically, when the consequences came, they came in and bailed them out. It got to a point where that family member that was bailing them out was so overstressed and so overwhelmed and they didn't need to be that way. But that's how it is when we live outside of God's will. and We don't respond to situations in a biblical way. We take all the consequences for their sins. And that's not what God expects. And even today, that family member, they decided to stop and cut off the support. And the person still has not responded. And that person's about to lose their house and my family. And so it's a sobering reality to me me as I talk about this topic because it's personal to me. But we as believers, we have to show that we have to protect ourselves by withdrawing from them. Second of all, we have to respond with personal warning. In verses 11 and 12, Uh, The Apostle Paul writes, For we hear that there are some which walk among you disorderly, working not not at all, but are busybodies. Now them that are such, we are commanding and exhorting by our Lord Jesus Christ that with quietness they work and eat their own bread. Now, just to put this in context again, the Apostle Paul has already warned them in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. He's already commanded the, the people in the church of Thessalonica in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 to warn and to rebuke this kind of behavior. But it's gone on for so long that now the Apostle Paul is saying, your individual warning's not enough. Now I am going to command and now I'm going to encourage them as a fellow believer that they do God's will. He is so patient, so merciful. And this is the kind of response that we should have. But we should warn them. We should speak out against it because unrepentant sin in the church will hinder the church's ministry. It'll, it'll hinder its testimony. I wanted to refer back to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, 
I read it earlier in verse 11 where he says, study to be quiet and to do your own business, to work with your own hands as we commanded you. But the next verse, in verse 12, gives the reason why he warned them. The reason why is, he says, that ye may walk honestly towards them that are outside the church. Basically, so that people on the outside can get a clear view of who God really is. Because you're hindering uh, the gospel message through your lifestyle. And that ye may have lack of nothing. So that you'll have your needs met. Because God has given you the ability to work. And so, because the church was misguided in its ch- charity, it was enabling irresponsibility with the disorderly people being disorderly in the church. It was enabling laziness because they were working not at all. And then it's gotten worse. He says that they're even busybodies. These people that weren't work, now they're even busybodies. And they were causing division in the church. And I want you to walk away from that verse, verse 11, with the fact that when unrepentant sin is not addressed, it always gets worse. The situation always gets worse. And we see that it got worse in the church. Now, what is, who is a busybody? I, quote, I say it this way. A busybody is someone that's not busy doing work, but busy doing nothing. Okay? That's, what, that's literally what it means. They're busy not doing work, but they're busy doing nothing. Um, apparently, you know, the text doesn't say that while they were not working, they went and served and served the Lord and ministered in the church. They didn't do that. But apparently they went around from house to house asking for handouts while these other people were trying to earn an honest living. They were trying to do God's will. And so they were disturbing the lifestyle of uh, obedient Christians and they also were burdening the church with the financial burden. And I'm sure that the people in the church who were doing the right thing were tempted to quit. Were tempted to join and hop on the bandwagon as well. And so he commands them and he warns them to work with quietness. That word quietness means to don't cause a ruckus, don't be divisive. Because they were being a divisive influence in the church. And then he also commands them that they work and that so that they may eat their own bread. So they might live in obedience to God's will. Because they were, at this point, a sinful influence in the church. And so this warning must come. And you must personally confront sin in the church. But did you notice how Paul confronts it? He doesn't say, hey, you know what, I don't think, I don't think that's a good idea. I really don't like that. What does he say? He says, we command. He uses that same word as in verse 6. We command you, want you guys that are living outside of God's will, I command you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, and I warn you to work with quietness and to earn your own bread, earn your own food, your own living. See, I think there's a lesson here for us, is that when we do have someone that is refusing to do God's will in the church, that we don't just come and say, you know what, I don't think that's a good idea. We should go to them with the authority authority of the Lord Jesus Christ and with the authority of God's Word. And if we can't do that, we shouldn't rebuke them. We need to do, handle the matter very wisely. We need to handle it biblically. We need to withdraw ourselves to protect ourselves from falling into sin. But we also need to rebuke them based on the authority of God's Word, not our opinions. Okay? And number three, respond with personal well-doing. Verse 13 says, But ye, brethren, be not weary in well-doing. 
And uh, what does he mean when he says that? I, I think he means that you know these people were probably ready to give up. The faithful ones. The ones that were doing God's will. I'm sure that as they are being persecuted for standing for the Lord Jesus Christ, and in, even in their own church, there's people that are being lazy and taking advantage of them. They probably were tempted, you know what? Hey, I might just quit. I might just live off the bill of the church. You know, Have the uh, other church members help me. And so there definitely was a, a temptation to do that. There was a temptation to become bitter towards those people that weren't doing God's will. And some of us do react that way. When we see someone that just refuses to do God's will, we personally get bitter towards them. And that's the wrong way to respond. Temptation for the faithful to stop the discipline, saying, you know what? I'm just not going to warn them anymore. I'm just not going to withdraw from them anymore. Because all these commands, withdrawing and warning, were all in the present tense. It was supposed to be something that was continual until they changed. But here in verse 13, the Apostle Paul writes, But ye, brethren, the ones that are faithful, be not weary in well-doing. Don't give up and respond right to these people. Um, Jesus gave some instructions for how to deal with those in the church that are living in sin and how to deal with a trespass against your brother. Matthew chapter 18 is the process that he gave and then it's followed out and fleshed out in the New Testament letters. But let me read verse 15 through 17 for you where Jesus says, Moreover, if thy brother shall trespass against thee, go and tell him his fault between thee and him alone. If he shall hear thee, thou hast gained thy brother. But if he will not hear thee, then take with with thee three, uh, excuse me, take with thee one or two more, that in the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. And it shall, and if it shall, and if he shall neglect to hear them, tell it unto the church. But if he neglect to hear the church, let him be unto thee as a heathen man or an unsaved man. And a, and a publican. All right? And so we have here kind of the guidelines that Jesus gave. He gave kind of a chronological process there in Matthew chapter 18, but we see it also here in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, but it's not chronological. Uh, he says, you know, withdraw yourselves personally. I think that is not even involved in Matthew 18, that you would just withdraw personally from this person to protect yourselves. But he does talk about going to them and warning them. He already did that in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and chapter 5. But here in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, we see two or three witnesses, two or three people confronting the, the people. Now, just so you know, when this letter was written to the church of Thessalonica, it was read in church. And so those people were in the pews that were doing these kind of things. And they were hearing this rebuke as the pastor read this letter from Paul and from the Lord. And so they have received this, and he says in verse 14, And if any man obey not our word by this epistle, by this letter, note that man and have no company with him, that he may be ashamed. So he says, If a believer refuses to respond to these other acts of discipline, then separate them from the church in love. Why? So that they may be ashamed of what they've done. That you would show disapproval and not tolerate it in the church. 
Secondly, in verse 15, he says, Yet, count him not as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. And so this is saying, even though he may not be part of the membership, he may not take part of the Lord's Supper anymore, or be in a position in the church anymore, you still should admonish him as a brother in Christ outside the church. Admonish him outside the church in love. The point, my friends, that Paul is making is that the church has to maintain its purity, not for its own reasons, but for the, but for the sake of the Lord Jesus Christ. God says in the pastoral epistles, in 1 Timothy specifically, that the church is the pillar and ground of the truth. And if the church is going in a direction that is unscriptural, or that is not true, then we as Christians have to take action. And we have the moral responsibility to help our brother and sister in Christ live in obedience. It's not that we sit in judgment of them, but we're actually trying to help them. We're trying to restore them to fellowship with Christ. We're not trying to ostracize them. We're not trying to hurt them emotionally or mentally, but we're trying to help them live in obedience to Christ. And Jesus insists that we help them in this way, but we have to do so with the love of Christ. He talks about count him as, not as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. Again, you and I cannot change a person's heart, but we sometimes, and it's unfortunate, we have to stand as salt and light in the church of God. And we have to have that salt, that saltiness, that preserving effect, even in the church. And we have to be willing to withdraw from a believer that's refusing to live in obedience to God's will. To warn them with the Scriptures. But most importantly, you can do it in the flesh. You have to do it in the Spirit and warn them with well-doing. You have to respond with well-doing. And the point is, if we follow this general pattern, this general process that the Lord gives, the hope and the prayer and the goal is that that disobedient brother or sister will repent of their sin and they'll get right with the Lord. Let's not enable people to continue to live in sin. Let's have a preserving effect even in the church and being willing to take action when those people are living in sin. Let's close in prayer. Lord, we thank You so much for the, the sobering reality that even though Christians accept the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior, we're still sinners saved by grace. And, it, and the temptation and the pressures of adopting philosophies from the world, tolerating sin in our own personal life, and even in the church, is so, can be so devastating to your work and to what you, your will is for the church. Help us, Lord, to stand and, and be courageous, to be willing to sacrifice our pride and, and our um, fears and be willing to stand against sin even in the church. Help us, Lord, to do it, though, in love. To do it in a spirit that the Lord Jesus models for us uh, in, the, in the Bible. That we would not do it in the flesh, but that we would walk in the Spirit and not fulfill the lusts of our own flesh in doing something quote-unquote good. Help us, Lord, not to uh, 
fall into the lie of trying to do something good by doing something wrong. Your Word says it will never be right. And I pray that You'll help us to respond to sin in a biblical way. Uh, Lord, I just pray for First Baptist that uh, I don't know of sin in the church, but Lord, if there is such, I pray that You would deal with it. And Lord, that You would protect our church from Satan and from his evil um, traps. And Lord, that You would protect this church from being an impure church, that we would stand and be pure and be holy as You've called us to be. Thank You, Lord, for this time we could study Your Word. I pray Your Spirit would work in our time of invitation. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.